Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings to those who watch below. This week is our Vampire Week on the channel, and today we're going to be starting off with some historical vampire cases. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you to those who dwell below, an exclusive channel membership that gets you shoutouts at the start of every video. So thank you to Steffi Ray, Wicked Witch, Lisa Watts, Lefty Kim, M.A. Way, Julie B, Jess Black Curtain, Christina Groves, LT Punisher 666, and Chris BLK Chris. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both this channel and to creepypasta.com's official YouTube channel, hitting that notification bell so you don't miss any videos on either channel. Also, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at brimstone underscore below for Instagram and brimstone below horror channel for Facebook. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy. Pitar Blagojevic Pitar Blagojevic was a Serbian peasant who was believed to have become a vampire after his death, and to have killed nine of his fellow villagers. The case was one of the earliest, most sensational, and most well-documented cases of vampire hysteria. It was described in a report from Imperial Provisor Frombold, an official of the Austrian administration, who witnessed the staking of Pitar. Pitar Blagojevic lived in a village called Kisilova, in the part of Serbia that temporarily passed from the Ottoman into Austrian hands after the Treaty of Pasarovitz, and was ceded back to the Ottomans with the Treaty of Belgrade. Blagojevic died in 1725, and his death was followed by a spate of other sudden deaths. Within eight days, nine people had perished. On their deathbeds, the victims allegedly claimed to have been throttled by Blagojevic at night. Furthermore, Blagojevic's wife stated that he had visited her and asked her for his shoes. She then moved to another village. The villagers decided to disinter the body and examine it for signs of vampirism, such as growing hair, beard and nails, and the absence of decomposition. The inhabitants of Kisilova demanded that both Frombold and the local priest should be present at the procedure as a representative of the administration. Frombold tried to convince them that permission from the Austrian authorities in Belgrade should be sought first. The locals declined because they feared that by the time the permission came, the whole community would have been exterminated by the vampire, which they claimed had already happened in Turkish times, 
when the village was still in the Ottoman-controlled part of Serbia. They demanded that Frombold himself should immediately permit the procedure, or else they would abandon the village to save their lives. Frombold was forced to consent. Together with the priest, he viewed the already exhumed body, and was astonished to find that the characteristics associated with vampires in local belief were indeed present. The body was undecomposed, the hair and beard were grown, and there were new skin and nails, while the old ones had peeled away. Blood could be seen in the mouth. After that, the people, who grew more outraged than distressed, proceeded to stake the body through the heart, which caused a great amount of completely fresh blood to flow through the ears and mouth of the corpse. Finally, the body was burned. Frombold concludes his report on the case with the request that, in cases these actions were found to be wrong, he should not be blamed for them, as the villagers were beside themselves with fear. The authorities apparently did not consider it necessary to take any measures regarding the incident. The report on this event was among the first documented testimony about vampire beliefs in Eastern Europe. It was published in a Viennese newspaper, along with the report of a very similar case in 1726 of Arnold Powell. It was widely translated west and north, contributing to the vampire craze of the 18th century in Germany, France and England. The strange phenomena or appearances that the Austrian officials witnessed are now known to accompany the natural process of the decomposition of the body. The Beric Vampire The canon William of Nubra was a priest and historian who gained much respect in his lifetime. He lived during the reign of Richard I in the 13th century. He introduced the tale of the Beric Vampire to the world. This was around the time when the plague devastated vast areas of the country and all of Europe. Canon William's story is about a rich merchant who was a victim of the plague, but the merchant was also a religious and thoughtful man. It was only after his death that the villagers of Berwick discovered that the man had led a corrupt, sinful life, so they refused his burial taking place on consecrated land. Soon after his funeral, some unexplainable and terrible incidents took place in Berwick. The merchant had begun to rise from his grave in search of human flesh and blood amongst the villagers. The demented demon would bolt through the streets, looking for victims and shouting, Until my body is burned, you folk of Berwick shall know no peace. Behind the vampire, a pack of howling dogs followed, their loud baying keeping the villagers awake. The villagers had to end the horror of the Berwick vampire, so they had a somewhat productive meeting. They selected ten young farmhands to exhume the merchant's grave and dismember the body. Then they were to burn the remains and finally rid themselves of the forces of evil. However, they may have totally destroyed the Beric vampire, but tragedy still came to the village. This is because, after the destruction of the vampire, the Black Death returned to Beric. This disease killed half the population, which was usual after it resurfaced. Moreover, villagers claimed that as they buried their dead, something was still not quite right. Indeed, they could still hear the sound of baying hounds as they lay the diseased bodies to rest. Not only that, but they also claimed they could still hear the fearful screams of the vampire. So the question is whether there were two vampires, or did they not destroy 
the original Beric vampire. The Jewett City Vampires When people think of early New England, one of the many things that comes to mind are the infamous witch trials of the late 17th century, of which Connecticut was quite an active participant, with more than 40 people tried as witches and at least 10 of them executed. As the actions of those early residents indicates, during that dark time in Connecticut's history, the belief in and fear of supernatural creatures was quite strong. Not only were witches a source of concern, so was the devil himself. It's in this fertile breeding ground of fear that during the year of 1854, the renowned tale of the Jewett City Vampires takes place. These vampires were not the debonair romantic bloodsuckers of fiction, they were far from Count Dracula, Edward or Lestat. The vampires of the mid-19th century were thought to be the undead, arisen zombie-like from the grave, to find nourishment in the blood of family members. In this particular case, the family were the Rays of Jewett City, who over the course of nine years lost multiple family members to consumption, also known as tuberculosis. The first to die from the mysterious disease was 24-year-old son Lemuel in 1845. Less than four years later, family patriarch Henry B. Ray was felled by the same disease. He was followed to the grave in the same manner by 26-year-old son Elisha, only two years later. Three short years afterwards, in 1854, the eldest son Henry became stricken with the now all-too-familiar symptoms, and this was when the true panic set in. Now convinced that they were dealing with something well beyond the normal disease, the family decided that the untimely demises were being caused by their dead relatives rising from the grave during the night and returning to feast on the blood of the living. Something drastic needed to be done, and done quickly. According to newspaper accounts of the time, it was with the pure intent of protecting the living that the decomposing bodies of Lemuel and Elisha were dug up and burned immediately. Although it appears the body of Joseph Sr. was spared, it was believed that the burning did the trick. History does not record a specific date for Henry's death, so it's thought that he survived his disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Last American Vampire, Mercy Brown Edwin Brown was wasting away. For the better part of two years, he grew increasingly thin and weak, as tuberculosis ravaged the once strapping young man. In March 1892, Edwin struggled to breathe, as he continuously coughed up blood. He had sought a cure in the rarefied air and mineral waters of Colorado Springs, but the 18-month trip offered no healing powers and only left him homesick for a small town in America's tiniest state. Edwin Brown returned home to Exeter, Rhode Island, where his father tilled the soil as a Yankee farmer. George Brown had watched helplessly as the disease known as consumption took the life of his wife, Mary Brown, in 1883, 
followed by his 20-year-old daughter, Mary Olive, six months later. His only son grew weaker and weaker in the winter of 1892. Tuberculosis also took his 19-year-old daughter, Mercy Lena Brown, who passed away on January 19, 1892. The disease that took three members of George Brown's family was the top killer of its time, particularly in New England. While tuberculosis was all too common for the townspeople of Exeter, what happened next certainly wasn't. It wasn't widely known what caused tuberculosis or how it spread. Doctors were unable to explain the wave of sickness washing over George Brown's family, but relatives and friends thought they knew where they could find the cause, six feet underground. With science failing to help Edwin Brown, the distraught Exeter residents turned to superstition and the supernatural. 200 years after the Salem witch trials, a vampire hysteria gripped the New England town. A group of Exeter residents believed that Edwin's mother or one of his sisters may be undead and sucking the life out of him from beyond the grave. With the extremely reluctant blessing of George Brown, who at first discounted the vampire theory, his relatives and neighbours visited the Brown family plot in the town's Chestnut Hill Cemetery on March 17, 1892. In the small graveyard, they exhumed the bodies of Mary Brown and Mary Olive Brown. They opened the caskets and found only their bones inside. The townspeople then turned their attention to the casket of Mercy Brown, who had died eight weeks earlier. Accounts differ as to whether Mercy's body had already been buried, or if it rested in a crypt until the ground could thaw and the undertakers could dig a grave. However, when the lid was lifted off of Mercy's coffin, her body was found on her side. Her face appeared flush, and there was blood in her heart and in her veins. Dr. Harold Metcalf, who had raised his objection to the entire affair, assured everyone that the lack of decomposition was perfectly consistent with the fact that she had been dead for less than two months. Knowing that medicine had done nothing to save the Browns, the people of Exeter ignored the doctor's proclamations and took the presence of fresh blood in Mercy's heart as a sign that she was undead. They gathered firewood and kindled a bonfire on a pile of nearby rocks. Then they cut out Mercy's heart and lungs and cremated them on the pyre. They returned to Edwin Brown's house with the ashes of his dead sister's heart and mixed them with water. Edwin consumed the concoction, but the tuberculosis continued to consume him. He died two months later, on May 2nd, 1892. This was not the first time the remedy of burning the organs of the dead and mixing the ashes into elixir for the sick had been tried in Rhode Island, even in Exeter. In 1799, the townspeople exhumed the body of Sarah Tillinghast, suspecting her of being a vampire. Author Diana Ross McCain reports that there were 18 documented instances of the exhumation of family members in suspected vampire cases throughout New England in the 18th and 19th century, but the case of Mercy Brown would be the last. After digging up Mercy Brown, the townspeople buried her heartless body into the ground of Chestnut Hill Cemetery, where, under a weathered tombstone, she now rests in peace. The Crogling Grange Vampire Another early incarnation of a British vampire emerged during the 1800s, when Augustus Hare told the story of the Crogling Grange Vampire 
in his autobiography, Story of My Life. The Croglin vampire was said to have been at least a couple of centuries old. Hare claimed that Captain Fisher had told him of a really extraordinary story connected with his own family. The Fisher family had a long-standing presence of several hundred years in Cumberland, at a place they called Croglin Grange. The family eventually grew out of their house, thus they decided to relocate it to the south. But instead of leaving their property vacant, they chose to let it out to paying tenants. The Cranswell siblings, two brothers and a sister, took up residency in the single-storey farmhouse. Winter came and went without incident, but the following summer was a muggy one. On one oppressively hot night, the tenants took the opportunity to watch the moon before finally going to bed. The sister, Amelia, lay on her bed on top of the covers and closed the bedroom window. The shutters remained unlocked, though. Unable to settle down to sleep in the heat, Amelia gazed out of her window. A church, complete with its own graveyard, stood beyond a line of trees. Her eyes caught a glimpse of something concealed in the twilight. Two flickering lights seemed to be moving among the copse of trees visible from her window. She was intrigued at first, but the longer she watched, the more nervous she began to feel. In a moment, both lights started to emerge from the tree line and into view. It looked as though the lights were part of a more substantial form, a humanoid form. As the figure approached the farmhouse, the startled and terrified young lady suddenly found the compulsion to act. Amelia raced to the door, arriving just in time to unlock it. It seems as though this was not a moment too soon. As she fumbled at the lock, Amelia could hear a scratching sound coming from her bedroom window. Despite her growing fear, she dared one look backward. Standing outside the window, almost filling it, was a hideous face that had fierce, glaring eyes. Bony fingers made efforts to open the window for a couple of seconds before stopping. A new noise made Amelia freeze with even more fear. Whatever was outside was now picking at the lead seals of the window. No sooner had this sound rendered her immobile than another made her blood run cold. The window fell out, and one arm levered in to open the window from the inside. Unable to move or even raise an alarm, the thing moved quickly and was beside her in moments, teeth nestled into her exposed neck. Now she felt able to scream. Her shrieking alerted both of her brothers, who came to investigate. After breaking down her door, the invader fled the way back it had come. Amelia's brother took up the pursuit, but he was no match for the giant strides of the creature. It disappeared beyond the wall of the churchyard. Amelia was bleeding quite heavily, but passed off her attacker as an escaped convict from a lunatic asylum. Given her ordeal and the fact she regarded herself as a girl with very little superstition, it was perhaps an understandable conclusion. Amelia did recover from her wounds, but needed to recuperate. The three of them went to Switzerland, so that she could completely recover. While there, Amelia yearned to return to Croglin. Despite the events that took place, she and her brothers still liked the area, and they were popular among the other residents. The decision was Amelia's, and she decided to return, insisting that lunatics do not escape every day of the week. When they returned home, they spent another quiet winter in Croglin. It was during the following March that Amelia began to hear 
the unmistakable scratching at her window once more. This time, she acted promptly and decisively, screaming for help before the same creature from before managed to gain access to her room. Both of her brothers responded quickly, only this time they were armed. Her screams also forced the creature to flee, and it was heading back the way it had come when one brother took aim and fired. Despite being hit in its leg, the monster still made an escape, only this time the brothers were able to track it. The beast had taken refuge inside a crypt that belonged to a family from the area. The brothers decided against entering the crypt at the time. Instead, they would gather a posse and investigate at daybreak. When they opened the tomb the following morning, they discovered several coffins. Only one of them was intact, but the lid was ajar and laying loosely on top of it. Inside was a corpse with a fresh bullet wound in one leg. They removed the body, brought it outside the crypt, and lit it on fire. Thus ended the Croglin Vampire. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. Indeed, I really hope you enjoy the rest of Vampire Week. I've got some really good things coming up. So, until next time, sleep tight.